Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, John Hansen. Now, since January, we've been airing a series of what you could call, I guess, informal, off-the-cuff interviews with a number of executives and experts and industry thought leaders from the procurement world. And, and we've been focusing on what, I, what we consider to be the three most important questions in our industry for 2015. Now, I want to preface this by saying these aren't the only questions. But the reason we're asking these is that you, as our readers and listeners, have indicated that these are something that uh, really represent areas of interest for you. So we are going to be posing these questions today to the ISM uh, Chief Executive Officer, Tom Derry, who is joining us from Tempe, Arizona. And we're going to develop, I guess, some of the ideas and concepts in relation to where the industry is heading, what impact it's going to have in terms of these key areas, and what we might be expect even beyond 2015. Now, before I bring Tom online, I want to remind everybody that we're broadcasting live over the same virtual airways of the Block Talk Radio Network, through our studios in New York City. So if you're joining us live, hey, it's great to have you. We always love that. But if you can't, if your schedule is not conducive to joining us live, not to worry because the entire broadcast is being recorded in its entirety, which means, listeners, that you'll be able to tune in at your convenience on an on-demand basis. And this is just one of the great, great features of Internet radio and in particular, blog talk radio. Now, without further delay, I want to welcome to today's segment uh, Tom Derry. Tom, how are you? I'm well, John. Thank you very much. Well, you know, I have to tell you, and it, it's kind of like the, and, and we had a chance to speak ever so briefly in the virtual green room, but, you know, having uh, had the top 30 under 30, uh, uh, three of the, the young up-and-coming stars uh, on our show the other day, I know ISM and ThomasNet worked to bring that about. It, it's kind of interesting in terms of the fact that the length of time that ThomasNet has been around and ISM, you're celebrating your 100th anniversary at this upcoming conference this year, that the two, I would say, I don't want to say grandfathers or oldest, implying any kind of negative tone, but that, you you know, the longest standing profession sort of jumped onto the fact that, you know, we have to start engaging this next and upcoming generation, identifying them more effectively. I mean, what was the thinking behind ISM's involvement with the program? Well, it, it really is a, it's a, responding to a simple demographic fact, which is that within 10 years, three-quarters of the workforce uh, in the United States, certainly, actually around the globe, will be in the millennial generation, you know, those, those folks born from 1980 onward. Uh, and that's just a stunning change to the nature of the workforce uh, as it is currently uh, made up today. So we need to reach out to these young people um, and, and introduce them to the fascinating career of procurement and supply management um, and uh, explain how strategic it is to corporations and the personal benefits of a career in the field. And if we don't do it, um, you know, we'll, we'll be missing out on one of the most significant demographic changes industry has faced uh, in the last 50 years. Now, let me ask you this, because is, is, there's, I guess, two lines of thinking over here. Number one is, 
that by reaching on such a way, you're developing a presence for the industry and drawing more of these millennials, more of the up-and-coming talent, the, the best and the brightest to the profession itself. I mean, I almost think of it almost like developing a farm system to a certain degree by recognizing and engaging them in such fashion. I mean, would that be a fair description? Oh, no no question. And we've been doing it for more than 10 years through our Richter Scholar Program, which was we we jointly sponsored with the Richter Foundation. Gene Richter, of course, was a... Uh, a, a, a preeminent thought leader in our profession and a top practitioner at companies like Hewlett Packard and uh, IBM. And so we've now uh, recognized uh, more than 60 preeminent young undergraduate scholars entering the field, uh, another 30 under 30 program uh, specifically looking at the manufacturing industry in the United States this is a second initiative. We've got our own young professionals initiative within uh, ISM itself. So we've been doing quite a bit to develop this uh, up-and-coming generation, also recognizing that they're bringing an additional set of skills, a new set of skills that are absolutely going to be necessary to be uh, maximally effective, optimally effective in the profession in in the coming decades. Now, one of the things, that, and before we get to the first question, one of the things that's interesting in, in, in terms of this is considering the long history of ISM and, and, and again, Thomas uh, Net. How has this been different, I guess, cultivating or developing this generation from generations past? I mean, let's face it, you have over a century or a century doing what you're doing. I mean, is it is it intrinsically different from the past in terms of drawing people into the industry? Because I can remember, Tom, speaking in front of audiences of all sizes and asking how many people chose to be in purchasing or procurement. And, uh, you know, five, ten years ago, if you got one or two hands, that would have been a lot. I mean, is is there a difference in terms of how you're engaging the next and up-and-coming generation now than, let's say, years and decades past? And why is there a difference? Well, yeah, there's, there's no question there is, John. And like any business, you know, we look at things like the consumption habits of our customers and members, uh, and it, they're clearly shifting. Um, you know, people are comfortable with the internet now as, as a basic, uh, you know, media distribution technology, whether that's going to web pages, right, and, and looking at basically what would have been printed information 30 years ago, but now just uh, represented on the Internet. But increasingly, like in this case, we're doing this live audio segment via the Internet. Um, clearly, mobile platforms are in the, in the ascendancy. I remember reading a very interesting piece um, a few years back about eBay, and the, the new CEO of eBay was confronted with a classic problem that companies who enjoyed success have, which is, all right, we're eBay, we dominate our space in the Internet, in the Internet auction area, and we've had this tremendous run of success, and the, and the CEO was absolutely adamant they had to reinvent themselves as a mobile platform business, not as a desktop platform business, because that was the future. And he faced classic resistance within his own team. And said, hey, listen, don't mess with the success we've had. ISM faces a similar kind of uh, you know, strategic imperative, just like any business. We have to become more digital in the distribution of our information. That's why our online learning courses are so popular and growing. We have to understand how our members and customers want to consume and need to consume information, confronting the kinds of lives they live today. Let's face it, most households are two-income households, and if you are raising children, you're certainly working long hours, you're not going to be able to access information during a nine-to-five kind of format the way you might have been able to, say, uh, even 25 years ago. So there are lots of significant underlying changes in consumer behavior, and we have to track with those or we just won't be relevant. And then finally, okay, no, we're... Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but this is an interesting point, just as you're talking about saying relevant with the current generation. 
but I would imagine there's still an, an existing or a previous generation with which you must maintain that kind of relevancy, at least. I, I don't know what your demographic mix is between what you would call the established base as well as the up-and-coming base, but how do, how do you do that? Because this leads into the next question. How do you, how do you bridge that generational divide of, of, of engagement? Well, you, you do it like, like – and you think of ISM really as a, a content business, and that's what we do. We provide ed, learning and development opportunities and, and content into the profession on behalf of the profession. And so like any classic media business, we're, we're managing a transition from you know, an old print-based dissemination uh, methodology to one that's much more digital. And so you, you continue to – meet the needs of your existing customer base while you layer in on top of that newer modes of technology that that are the way that your up and coming and future members and customers want to consume information. So we'll as we, we layer in the more digital applications, we uh, will gradually wind down the more traditional uh, uh channels of, of dissemination and uh just like any business manage that transition carefully so that we don't alienate any one group while we prepare for the future. So it's like content timing, because one of the things, and then I'll get into Robert Hanfield's statement of the definitive and definite divide between what is the uh, old generation and the new generation emerging. But I read a study somewhere saying that unlike any other time in business, within the same enterprise, you could have up to four different generations uh, employed simultaneously. So when you talk about content management, you're not just talking about the type of content, but the way in which it's disseminated. Is it safe to say that ISM is attempting to serve as the bridge between these generations in, in not just a theoretical standpoint, not just in a technical, technological standpoint, but in a practical standpoint to create a, a consistent message. Uh, that, that's absolutely the case. And, and we do that in, in uh, any number of ways. I mean, we've got, we have uh, more than half a dozen apps uh, that we offer at ISM as a small example. But, uh, and, and those, you know, are increasingly popular with, uh, with, with young people, but we recognize, and, and as we do our own internal strategic market research, we recognize that you know we generate uh, something like 4,000 unique web visitors every day on our website. So that continues to be the most popular method of interaction with ISM. So that that channel has to be well managed by us, uh, and we continue to print 45,000 copies of our award-winning magazine, the traditional print magazine, which is highly valued by people. So. Uh, you know, we have to be, manage across that whole spectrum. Now, let me ask you this. Going into managing that spectrum, being that, that bridge of connectivity and, and shared uh, insight and content and knowledge, one of the things, and I referred to Dr. Robert Hanfield, in his book he talked about, again, the definitive or definite break between the older and, or past generations and new ones. And basically what he said is, is that unlike previously where one generation had something worthwhile in knowledge to hand off to the next generation, right now in the procurement world, this doesn't exist. That the, 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 every knowledge that went beforehand and the perception of what defined our profession and the job and the objectives and understanding our role in the world, what was passed no longer is valid in terms of what's going forward. And he referred to that as saying it's, it's almost like the new generation it's starting from square one again. I mean, what do you think when you hear that? Well, I, I mostly agree with that premise. I mean, there are a few areas clearly where you know, critical negotiation skill is going to be as fundamental to this job uh, in 50 years as it was 50 years ago, right? That's just a human dynamic. That doesn't change. But in terms of some of the skills that are being applied, 
you know, no question that we're in a brave new world. Um, whether that means the advent of the Internet of Things and the information flows we'll be managing in the supply chain in addition to the product and service flows that we've been managing historically, that's a whole new way of looking at uh, managing flows, whether it's embedded information about a product or a sub-assembly or a component or financial information about that transaction or even information about the ultimate end customer of that component. Um, you know, that that's a whole new way of, of understanding the flows across national boundaries that will become fundamental to how we manage supply chains. Supply chains are so strategic to firms these days that the firms that are that have the most speed and the most agility in their supply networks are the ones that win. And so the ability to analyze massive amounts of data, make intelligent business decisions, and do it quickly is going to be the key critical advantage for the next generation of practitioners in our field. Okay, now the skills you alluded to, because I remember reading a blog post, I think it was on the Nipando blog by Aaron Levna, who said with the Internet of, of Things, uh, uh, what he was saying is is that 90% of the functionality that was handled manually or part of the orientation process or the job requirements of the profession will now move away, freeing up humans to focus on the more strategic elements. And I take it when you talk about the more strategic elements, you made reference to negotiation and contract management. I mean, uh, uh, is that really the, the, the biggest difference overall is, is that traditionally the, the, the uh, procurement professional or purchasing professionals was more functional in their role in executing those at a day-in, day-out level, where now they have to become more strategic and, 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 and more capable in areas that maybe they weren't necessarily traditionally? Yeah, there's two key points, I think, to respond to your question, John. One, the first is that in the CPOs that I interact with, and I have the good fortune of, of interacting with CPOs from around the globe and managing global teams, I mean, they're moving the traditional purchase order processing function out of their organizations, not even seen as part of procurement. It was entirely procurement 30 or 40 years ago, but CPOs don't put it in a shared service center and say, you know, it's not even part of my, my global supply chain team. So that's one critical change. The other thing that is clearly, you know, we, we hear a lot of discussion around it, but I can make it, I think, more concrete. Think about the role of innovation in the global economy today. And I love this example that I stumbled across Last summer, I was reading a transcript of an earnings call, uh, and Bob Shanks, the CFO of Ford Motor Company, was uh, the, was giving these remarks along with, along with Ford's CEO. And Ford is a great example because they're in a classic industry in our profession, right, automotive, and also one of the companies that's been at the forefront of innovation and development of the profession and spawned some great talent in our field. So I'm reading the transcript. And uh, one of the, in the investors on the call from Barclays Bank was asking Bob Shanks about the sustainability of cost reduction that Ford had achieved in some of its key product lines. And he addressed the point. And he said, well, yes, you know what? We're very good at that. We're very good at engineering cost out of our product. We're very good at our internal processes. But he said, you know, I wouldn't focus on that. And this is really interesting and I think marks a sea change for our profession. He said, you know, in our industry, we've been experiencing – absolute declines in consumer prices that are paid for automobiles over the past 10 years. But what we're seeing now is that new innovation in, in the industry, particularly navigation systems and entertainment systems, and by the way, we've got cars that are wired to the Internet now. Uh, he said that's creating, those, those kinds of features and functions are creating pricing opportunities. Consumers are willing to pay more for a car that contains those features. 
that innovation comes from their suppliers, from Ford's suppliers. So having that critical conversation, and automotive again is a good example because in some it's a famous example of of the OEMs beating up on the supply network sometimes to get to drive cost out. Um, you can't maintain that kind of interaction with your supply base if you're going to rely on them for these critical innovations that are ultimately going to increase your bottom line at the OEM level. So for him well, to point out they, supplier innovation is so critical, I think marks a, a significant mind shift for our profession. You see, that's an interesting point you just raised because it opens the door to the concept of the relational models advocated by people such as Andy Akruj, Kate Vitasek, uh, and, and the likes who, who have said in, in the past, uh, or, or who have said what's changing with the past is given the strategic importance of the relationships and the role that, that, that suppliers play, in that regard, the mindset has to change from one of, of again, a transactional model where you're negotiating best price and, 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 and focusing just on, on cost reduction to one where you become truly partners with that. And the key then is finding the right model by which you manage those relationships. I mean, is that one of the areas, I guess, that is a major shift away from, the, from what you can call, again, going back to the older generation and how they were taught to do the business? I mean, I can remember the days of using Thomas uh, Industry Catalog, flipping through pages with paper clips, trying to find the best right. price, to one where you have to be able to manage relationships, to one where you have to recognize the, the, the collaborative uh, uh, necessity to achieve an end result, and that isn't just negotiating the best price. I mean, is that, is that one of the big differences? Yeah, and you know there are a lot of things that drive that big difference, John. And one of, one of them is very f fundamental in terms of uh, how in industries and, and, and companies organize themselves. Uh, you know, it's remarkable that of, the, of the, the typical cost structure of an S&P 500 firm since 1970, the total amount of its cost that is spent outside of the firm externally has moved from about 60% to more than 80% over that 45-year period. Uh, and that represents the shift to a bigger supply base, right? Moving, moving more of your cost structure outside the four walls of your firm. So in an outsourcing world over the last 25 years, you had incredible opportunities to leverage suppliers against one another, right? To, to consolidate spend and leverage the amount of spend. And that was the natural first phase. So it's not, not a surprise that over the last 25 years, companies, you know, the buyers have had realized they've got tremendous power to leverage their position and get costs lower. Well, that makes sense. Well, you know what? The opportunities for expanding the global supply base, are, we're rapidly reaching the, the point of diminishing returns, right? We've only got so much geography that we can move to. So we're shifting, I think, inevitably to this next phase where, okay, cost reduction is important. It'll never go away. But now a different set of skills, understanding how you manage supplier relationships, um, you know, in kind of a win-win situation, to use that tired old phrase, that becomes important because today, if we if we stopped in time today, we'd have to recognize that profits tend to pool at the OEM level and get squeezed out of every tier in the supply base below them. Uh, that model really isn't sustainable in the long run, and and has to be changed. And and you know, companies are are clearly working in this new environment where you know, economists refer to it as a factoryless goods producers. It's this new entity. It used to be a manufacturing firm or you were a services firm. And there's this third new entity called the factory list goods producer where Nike designs products but doesn't actually make them, right, as, as, as a classic example. And that's what's been driving a lot of this change. 
Well, you see, you know, when you mentioned there's two streams of thought here. I want to get into the the, the 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 latter in terms of the redefinition, like Nike designing but not manufacturing. But when you're talking about the non-sustainable nature of uh, decreasing costs, I was reminded of a, of a CAPS study, and I think ISM was involved in this study, if, if I'm not mistaken, back in 2005 when reverse auctions came onto the scene. And they wrote in that study that they found that after the initial events, when the market had corrected itself through the efficiency of the reverse auction, that savings dramatically declined. In other words, it wasn't sustainable at the level when it was first launched. I mean, that's initially what I thought of when you, you talked there. So going back to 2005 and what you're talking about now, it, it would seem that that's the manifestation of that, isn't it? Uh, it absolutely is. And, you know, there will always be opportunities as we uh, move across categories. I know one of your previous guests talked about uh, how buyers are leveraging their, their power to commoditize and affect transportation, right? And, uh, you know, there, there's a point of view of what, whether or not that is a should be commoditized. But, uh, you know, the, the, the reality is that companies recognize they've got that buying power, and it's not surprising that they're going to try to exercise it. Um, you're seeing it in certain industries that are, are not as far advanced in adopting our discipline. You know, the healthcare industry is a great example that's really lagging industries like automotive and pharmaceuticals and others in terms of embracing what can be delivered. We're going to be going through what we've already experienced over the past 20, dec 20 years in, in healthcare in the next 10 years. And the, you know, the learning curve will be shortened, but we'll be going through the same cycles in, in that industry that we've already gone through in other industries. But overall, the big picture is quite clear. All right, so here's on the other side of that question, because a few years ago, and we're talking about redefining roles, and in fact, I read an article recently um, indicating that there should be a whole new role set up called uh, Chief Relationship Officer, or CRO. But I remember reading about the, the uh, a survey uh, with, with CIO Magazine saying Chief Information Officers, IT people are saying, we have to redefine ourselves now. Uh, you know, finance in terms of uh, still being the focal point of all, all the, the heartbeat of the, the enterprise, they themselves are going through shifts and changes, and, of course, CPOs and, and procurement. I mean, is, is, is a CRO, a chief relationship officer, something that we're likely to see emerge as sort of a, would you call an amalgam of all those other disciplines or areas of practice? I think it's going to be critical. You know, just think about the world of technology for a moment. You really have got four basic ecosystems in the, in, in the consumer technology world. You've got a Microsoft ecosystem, you've got a Google ecosystem, you've got an Amazon ecosystem, and uh, well, you, you could argue whether there's a fourth. And you have to understand how you're going to play, and you have to choose which ecosystem you're going to operate in, or maybe ecosystems. But increasingly, companies are going to try to kind of own their entire space, and you may be shut out. If you're, if you're a Google shop, maybe you're not in a Microsoft shop, right, going forward. So, and, and Apple would be the other famous ecosystem. So uh, you have to understand that there's a shifting landscape. It doesn't mean that we own technologies but uh, exclusively, but it, it does mean that we're operating in a, in a sphere where we have to interact with partner firms and companies have to understand what their strategic landscape looks like, 
which companies are going to be critical to providing capability they need to be successful and make sure that they've got good relationships. So that's the relationship element becomes critical. Now, you know, believe it or not, we're down to the last six minutes. I, I, good conversations go by so quickly. I, I want to touch on a couple of things. I, I know I wanted to go to the mobile supply chain and what it means. Uh, but before even doing that, I'll jump ahead to the third question. When we're talking in the context of what we've just spoken about, is there a difference between the public and private sector? I mean, it, it, and, and what are they in terms, of, uh, in terms of this evolution? Well, you know, I think that's a great question. It's really, really interesting to me, John. I think in many ways what distinguished the public and private sector in the past is now converging. And, and, and specifically, the public sector classically had to layer into its purchasing role some societal goals that were imposed by government, right? Well, these these kinds of um, societal goals are being imposed on the private sector in a way that they never had been before. You know, uh, the famous example, obviously, is the conflict minerals provision out of the Dodd-Frank law. But that's only just one example. Think about, this is often overlooked, but remember back in October of 2012, the House Intelligence Committee released a report saying that Huawei and ZTE posed national security risks to U.S. firms because of concerns about technology that might have been embedded in their routers and switches. I mean, they didn't go so far as to legislate, but they certainly put a big flag in the ground saying, hey, listen, be careful about who you're doing business with. Consumers, you know, back in 2010, uh, the Rainforest Action Network showed up at General Mills with a protest and said, listen, we think you're contributing to deforestation of rainforests around the world because of your use of palm oil. And, you know, Four years later, General Mills published a policy that formally addresses their sustainable sourcing of palm oil around the world. It wasn't imposed by a legislator. It was imposed by activists and consumers. So we increasingly have to factor in these kinds of factors. And companies that get it will, will do this proactively. Otherwise, they'll be blindsided by you know, a social media post that goes viral and will realize that their, their, their business is being uh, very much impacted. So, so in essence, and it's kind of interesting because when you talk about public sector procurement, it's often seen as a vehicle for driving innovation. Uh, you look at industrial regionalized benefits in terms of strategic procurements that help build up a particular region's economic strength and all these other factors. What you're saying is, is in the private sector, there also has to be a, a, an increasing social awareness of the impact of what they're doing. They're not operating in a vacuum. So in that way, that's where the similarities exist between both public and private uh, sector uh, procurement professionals. I mean, am I getting absolutely. that right? Yeah, absolutely. And so you look at local content requirements, right? For an oil and gas firm that's setting up uh, an exploration project in a different part of the world. We've had to deal with local content requirements for a long time. But the way that companies engage there is, is entirely different. Um, they look at the entire economic ecosystem in that area. Uh, they sometimes have to build up capability that doesn't exist in that country. They will. I, I'm aware of an example of, a, of an oil and gas firm that built a bakery near its production facility because culturally it was important for their local workers to be able to have access to that daily source of bread, and they had to travel 60 miles to get it otherwise. So they, they built up a. Lo they created a local business. They built up a local economy, and they provided a valuable service to their to their employees because it was good business, right? So it was doing good to do good business, and private sector companies recognize that and are doing it more and more. Now, are there any industries within the private sector that are getting that message uh, sooner than, let's say, other sectors? Who's leading the charge to this increased social sensibility on the private side? 
Well, if, if you are a, a classic B2C business, um, you have to be absolutely aware of it. I, I really admire what's happening, for instance, at Patagonia, which makes you know, clothing for outdoor adventure and, 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 and camping and, and, and all of that. And you know, they, they go so far as to look at how their, their own supply chain, um, one recent example that impressed me, they've reinvented the wetsuit. A lot of their customers use the wetsuit, right? The wetsuit is not biodegradable, and actually, so it's you know it, if, if you you might wear it for ten years, but when it has to be replaced, it ends up in a landfill. Well, they figured out a way to create a cotton wetsuit that is biodegradable, um, that has all the performance characteristics of the classic rubber wetsuit. So, they, in in keeping with their own values and in keeping with the values of their customers, they've created a product that performs just as well, but without the harmful side effects environmentally. So, you know, companies who are engaged with consumers are really at the forefront, I think, of having to understand what the new expectations are. Okay, now we're probably going to run two minutes overtime, but I've got to ask this. Obviously, that's an impact of the public sensibility onto the private sector. What from the private sector is migrating or, 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 or moving over to the public sector in terms of impacting the procurement professional in that area? Well, certain best practices are clearly more adopted, and you mentioned e-auctions earlier, um, you know, increasingly government entities um, are able to utilize those kinds of best practices to to improve the velocity with which they can source uh, and the efficiency and effectiveness of their sourcing process. So that would be a good example but, there. Okay, but it's it, it, because, we, again, we're familiar with the, remember in the late 90s, the new public management mindset that seemed to permeate the public sector, which suggested that the private sector had figured it all out and that their model was the one to emulate. I think you're talking about a little bit more than that, aren't you? I mean, you know, there are best practices and things along that particular line. But, you know, in terms of the the, the, the private sector influence on the public sector, I mean, it extends beyond that, though, doesn't it? Well, I, I think it, it clearly does. I mean, you know, we're, we're able to access um, leading-edge technology that, unless you're in a classic, um, uh, you know, sort of like defense-related field where, you know, the, the, the leading-edge technology and thinking is happening in a way that's typically funded through the public sector. But in all other areas, the best thinking typically is emerging from, uh, you know, private sector innovation. And uh, so that makes its way into commerce generally, and then it eventually is introduced into the public sector via the private sector. So within the private sector, you have much broader freedom to innovate and be creative and prove uh, the ideas or the new emerging technologies uh, than you would within the public sector, and that is where the greatest gain is uh, to to a certain degree. Yeah, you know, it's, it's jo Joseph Stumpeter's creative destruction, right, of capitalism, that power. So we see that all the time. And, and uh, you know, um, you know, this is a well-known example, but Eastman Kodak uh, was well ahead of the curve in inventing digital technology for photographs. Uh, and made the wrong strategic decision and said, you know, we're a film company <laughs> and we're not a photography company. And and uh, they actually owned a lot of the patents around digital technology, digital photography and just didn't see the promise. So Eastman Kodak is, is barely in existence and, uh, you know, digital firms have replaced them. That's, it happens all the time. And, and it's not that companies don't see the wave of the future. Many companies do see what's coming, but the, sometimes they don't have the ability to react as quickly as they need to or miss the key insight, and the result is they get overtaken by events. 
You know, it's kind of funny. I'm smiling when you say that. That's this will be a, a topic for discussion another day. But I remember actually working very closely with uh, Eastman Kodak out of Rochester when they first were converting their continuous tone printers and trying to find a more commercial use for them. Because as they explained it to me, their 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 uh, printers at that point. Uh, had been used extensively in the military during Operation Desert Storm. And, again, a continuous tone is obviously far more uh, vivid uh, resolution than the, the dot matrix that the corporate world was used to. And I remember the enthusiasm they had that in developing the, the Kodak engine to convert their digital cameras, uh, regular cameras into digital cameras and, and all of that. And then it just stopped. And I think that goes yeah. into what you were saying is they realize the future, but it's sometimes comfortable to keep your foot on first, but it makes dealing second base that much more difficult, right? Yeah, that, that's a great example. Yeah, absolutely. That, that adds a lot of depth to my example. And, you know, that's the challenge of any of us who are leaders in business to to not get comfortable with the success that we're enjoying at the moment because that's a recipe for being out of business very quickly. Well, Tom, the time has flown by. I, I haven't had a chance to talk about mobile supply chain. If possible, I'd love to have you back on the show to delve into that particular area because based upon our conversation today, I, I bet you that in itself could be a great segment. But thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. John, it was certainly my pleasure, and thanks for all the great work you're doing on behalf of our profession. Thank you so much. And to you, of course, the listener, thank you for, I guess, investing what is your most important asset, which is... <laughs> Thank you.